Good morning, everyone. Uh, I encourage you to uh, open up to the book of Ruth and, and just kind of put your finger there in chapter one. And uh, if you want, you can use uh, one of the Pew Bibles, uh, the blue hardback uh, ESV Bibles. You'll find where we're going to be today on page 262. While you're finding your place there, I didn't mention this last week, but I want to now just because it could be a resource to some of you beyond our tribe leaders. One of the books that we found so helpful in preparing for this series is a book called A Loving Life by Paul Miller. Um, it's a short, very readable book uh, that you, you can probably, I'm a slow reader, but you can probably get through that book if you're, you know, putting a half hour in a day and <clears throat> what's your suggestion, Reuben? Yeah, that's if you're Reuben Todd. If you're me, two weeks. Um, so somewhere in the range of one afternoon to two weeks. It's a smaller book, but it's rich, and uh, you'll, I'm drawing from it a lot, a lot of insight um, and, and good perspective in preparing for this series. If you weren't with us last week, we just started this book in the Old Testament, which takes place in the time period of the judges in Israel's history between their exodus from um, Egypt and uh, uh, they're, they're into the promised land at this point, but they're not yet to the point where they have kings that have been instituted in their culture. Um, so the judges was kind of this random period where God was just raising up uh, these colorful characters to bring deliverance to Israel when they, you know, after, their, after discipline, after punishment, after God would send in enemies to wake them up from their stupor of rebellion and rejection of God. So this is the time period in which Ruth takes place, and there was a famine in the land. We talked about last week how that famine was actually from the hand of God. Um, and yet the response of Naomi and Elimelech, her husband, to this famine was to leave, to escape, to go away from the people of God, away from Israel, away from Bethlehem, their hometown, and to the land of actually their enemies, the Moabites. And uh, long story short, you can go back and read those first 18 verses, tragedy, all kind of tragedy unfolded, especially for Naomi, who lost her husband and her two sons, but also for Ruth, uh, who lost her husband, one of Naomi's sons, and then made this beautiful commitment of love to follow Naomi back to her people at the cost of everything that was familiar and known to her and without any hope for a future, at least from a human perspective. And so we ended last week with Naomi and Ruth embarking on their journey back to Bethlehem, and that's where we'll pick up today in Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19. So for this part of our time in God's Word together, I'd ask for those of you who are able to stand, and we'll read Ruth 1, 19 through 22 together. Should be on the screen behind me as well if you'd like to follow along that way. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray together once more. Father, 
Thank you for this chance to get into your word, open our ears to hear from you, our spiritual eyes to see the truths you want to reveal about yourself and ourselves this morning, and do a great work of transformation in our hearts. We need your presence with us. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us. We need the healing power of your gospel to be at work in our heart as we see your Hesed love on display in the story of Ruth. Please do that for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You may go ahead and be seated. So as I alluded to last week, verses 1 through 18 really introduced us to the circumstances um, that were the impetus for the rest of this story that would unfold back in Bethlehem, which was all of this great suffering um, on Naomi's part as well as Ruth's. This week, through looking at these verses and to some degree last week's, I want to consider two different things. First of all, I want to consider what suffering results in. All right, we, when we see as normal um, these things we're going to talk about today in the midst of our suffering, it actually can prepare us to deal with them in healthier ways than when we're unawares that these things may happen or we see them as abnormal or something to be avoided. There's two things. One, we see the exposure of sin and weakness that happens in the midst of our suffering. Because when our resources are thin emotionally and spiritually, all that stuff that's just beneath the surface begins to rise up and come out, doesn't it? Anger and bitterness and frustration and even unbelief in terms of things that um, previous circumstances hadn't stretched us enough to reveal. Okay, so that's one of the things that suffering results in, and God uses suffering to expose these things so that he can deal with them in our lives. And the other thing that suffering results in that we see in our passage today is lament or grieving may be a more familiar word to you, and that's not something to be avoided. It may have been something that was alien in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world, but it's actually something, lament is something that is necessary in order for us to heal and process and deal with the brokenness in our lives and in this world. And it can make us uncomfortable, especially as we see it play itself out in Naomi's life. And so I wanna talk about why that is today. That's the first thing. I wanna talk about what suffering results in, and I also wanna talk about what loving others tends to result in, at least a couple of things today. Because we're going to see that loving others with this hesed kind of love, this one-directional, loyal, no-exit strategy love can be both extremely painful but also extremely rewarding. So if I was to boil those two things down into an outline for you to follow today, it would be this. First, we'll talk about the suffering that reveals sin. Secondly, we'll talk about how suffering warrants lament. Thirdly, that love often goes unnoticed. Fourthly, love never goes unnoticed. Those two things that appear anyway to be contradictory to each other, I hope to clear up by the end of our time today. So first of all, suffering reveals sin. This is where I want to pick up talking about the complexity of the journey of following Jesus as sinners and saints. Last week, we started to unpack this a bit uh, with Naomi, and we'll dig into her story more deeply here in a moment. But I want to just back up for a moment to say I think when I read, when we read the Bible, sometimes we can tend to see the characters within as pretty black and white, 
either evil or good, either obedient or disobedient. But I think when we have the lens before us of reading Scripture that the people in biblical times were a lot more like us than different from us, that it enables us to see in their journeys a lot more nuance and how similar the journeys are for them as they are for us in following Jesus today with all this complexity of the sinner saint journey. So over the years, I've had conversations with people for whom that, you know, expression, we are a complex mixture of sinner saints, can make them uncomfortable, understandably so, because we, there's this tension of a now and a not yet in this journey of salvation and sanctification and glorification, of God having saved us and making us now more like his son, and one day he will finish that work of making us completely holy and like him. So there's this tension of a now we live in and a not yet that hasn't come yet. And here's how that plays out in the sinner saint complex journey. On the one hand, we're told that we as God's people are set apart, right? We are holy. We are new creations in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. We are no longer slaves to sin. Those things are true, but they have to be in, t- in tension with this all other reality in which there's this indwelling sin that remains in us that God is wanting to sanctify and work out and refine as he makes us more into the image of his son. I was reading Philippians 3 earlier this week in my own quiet time, and here's what the Apostle Paul says as he is striving for the righteousness that comes by faith. He then says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this, that righteousness, or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul knew he was not perfect. It's all the more powerful when you realize he wrote this in his old age. He's probably a year or two away from death. He's in prison at this point. He's not a young man in his 30s. He's an older man in his 60s. And yet he was able to concede, yeah, I'm not perfect. This journey of following Jesus is complex. There's both saint and sin that God is still refining. We talked about how this complex, complexity showed up in the life of Naomi and her family last week when we talked about the strong possibility that the family shouldn't have moved to Moab to begin with, where it seemed as if it was more a response to circumstances they didn't like than a response of faith. One of the things I didn't say last week is note that this week they returned to Bethlehem and everybody's not dead. They survived. In fact, God's favor came back upon them, as we read at the end of last week's passage, and he visited them and provided food. But for some reason, Naomi and Elimelech left. So already there's some complexity to this, um, this family of faith that nonetheless probably left Bethlehem, left the people of God and, their, and the promised land when they shouldn't have. Well, there are other instances I want you to see of this as well, in Naomi's life in particular. For example, we see that she had some tainted belief when it came to her monotheism. It was a little bit gray. She believed God was the greatest God, but she also, it's implied that she believed there were other gods. So in verse 8, for example, she says to Naomi and, and uh, or excuse me, to Ruth and Orpah, as she's encouraging them to go back to their people, to the Moabites. She says to them, return, may the Lord deal kindly with you. Now, here's why that's so important, and that's an expression of great faith on Naomi's part, 
because in that time, every nation believed that they had a God and they believed that God was most powerful within the boundaries and borders of that nation, but didn't have any power outside of those borders in the other nations. Well, Naomi is implying here she believes God can bless Ruth and Orpah, even in Moab, that he is the greatest of all the gods. Nonetheless, there's an implication she believed there were other gods. She says in verse 15, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and gods. You should return as well. See, there's an implication here on Naomi's part. She believed something true about God. He is the greatest God. But she also believes something false, that there's these other gods. There's this syncretism, mixture of these different religious beliefs from Israel and the surrounding nations that existed in their time. Now that to us may seem like, well, of course we don't believe in other gods. Well, we believe in, you know, there being uh, principalities and, and, and higher powers like Satan and demons and things, but not other gods. But understand that in our own contemporary context, Jesus knew this, so he said things like, you can't worship both God and money. Both of them can't be on the throne of your heart. Um, so there's so many other ways in which this can play itself out. Again. Naomi is probably more like us than different from us. She exemplified great faith in one respect, but areas that needed refinement and sanctification in another. She also had tainted actions, right? She showed, on the one hand, great love towards Ruth and Orpah. As in verse 8, as they're leaving Moab and they're headed back to Bethlehem, there's this like pause where she realizes in this moment, wait a minute, they're throwing their lives away. I need to keep them from doing this. And so she encourages them to return. And so that's faith. That's a selfless consideration on Naomi's part in the midst of her own suffering, what's best for others. And yet by the end of her argument with them to be able to convince them to go back, she's actually commanding them to return. She ends up saying, it is more bitter for me than for you. That's the NIV translation in verse 13. In other words, she's saying, my life is a mess. I have no hope. God is against me. Why would you want to hang around with me? Just go away. There's an implication here, as can be true of human nature, to almost enter into this self-pity and, and want to keep others at bay. Not because that's what's right, but that's just a byproduct of self-pity. So you see this complex mixture of genuine love and consideration of Ruth and, and, and Orpah, and at the same time, some self-pity that creeps in that's pushing them away for the wrong reasons. Complex sinner saint journey. See, one other instance of it with regards to God's character. Naomi says in two places, verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then in verse 20 to 21, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me and it brought calamity upon me. Well, there's something about this. This is true. There's faith that she's demonstrating here that God is a God of power, and he's in control. And in the ultimate sense, she understands God to be responsible for her situation. The Hebrews actually had a much more robust understanding of the theology of God's sovereignty and providence over the circumstances of their lives. She got that right. But then what was false is she assumed God must be against her because of these tragic circumstances that unfolded. She was questioning his goodness. Complex mixture of the sinner saint journey that we're on and following after God. Now, why is this important? Why do I draw that out here this morning? Well, for a few reasons. Number one, to make it clear and obvious to us this morning, true followers of Christ are not perfect. You are not alone in your struggle of faith and for holiness. 
the key question that we need to be asking ourselves is what direction are we headed in right now? If I'm to skip down one verse after the last one from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, here's what he says after he concedes to not being perfect. He then says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, this perfection, this righteousness. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying, I'm not perfect, but by the grace of God, I can forget what lies behind, my imperfection, my failure, my sin that God has forgiven me of, and I can press on towards what lies ahead, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The question for us is not whether we're perfect, it's what direction are you going in right now? But the other reason I say this is because I could say the very same thing. True followers of Jesus are not perfect. And I could be saying this to those who think, well, I don't have any sin. True followers of Jesus aren't perfect. So you actually are alone. Well, actually you're keeping the company of one, Jesus. But I don't think that's company you wanna be keeping because only he is perfect. Now, I actually don't think that this probably applies to many, as many in this room as the previous struggle to think we're alone in our um, struggle for faith and holiness, but it probably shows up in more subtle ways. Like, we know the doctrine that all, fall short, all have sinned and fall short of the, of the glory of God, and yet we're completely unaware, perhaps, of anything right now in our lives that is sinful or broken. And of course, there are going to be days for all of us where by God's grace, we feel like, hey, I'm completely as aware as I can be of, of, you know, of my sin and like God has forgiven me and he's growing me. But I mean, if over a long period of time of following after Jesus, you are unaware of areas of brokenness and sin in your life, beware. John the Apostle says in 1 John 1, 8-9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Implication, we all have sin. And God surfaces and exposes that in the midst of our suffering. And as painful as that is, if we become aware of it and we repent of that and we experience God's grace in the midst of that, that can be one of the most confirming things in your walk with Jesus, that he is with you. And thirdly, I want to say this is important because when we recognize and then we repent of that sin, one of the things that it breeds in us is humility. And humility is a key to our souls not becoming toxic in the midst of our suffering, which actually leads to our next point, which is that suffering warrants lament. Lament is a proper response to pain. And just to bridge the gap, because I won't really go back to it, it's so important that we're walking in humility and awareness of where we fall short, and God has stepped in and intervened and forgiven. Because if we aren't, then we become bitter, and our souls become toxic, and our hearts become hard towards God, because we can only see him as at fault, and we can get derailed from that journey of following Jesus and go the opposite direction, okay? So suffering warrants lament. I don't think, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, I don't think lament is something that we're very good at um, in the West, in Western Christianity. I don't think it's a normative part of our culture. People tend to either stoicism on the one hand or over-lamenting on the other hand. By stoicism, I mean suppressing or stuffing down the emotions that we feel that are wrong. 
Because if we can just stuff them down and convince ourselves they're not there, then, um, then we get rid of the problem, which we don't actually. But that's what we can try to convince ourselves of. On the other hand, we can over-lament, and when we're overly emotional, it can lead to bitterness and it can lead to depression. And instead of our emotions actually serving us in this process of lamenting to, to, to experience healing in our relationship with God and others, our emotions can actually become our master. And when our emotions master us, then we enter into a state of emotional paralysis where we just can't go on with life. We tend to be, in general, human beings better at operating in these extremes, right? At least I am. But that's not the picture of lament that we have with a complex sinner saint like Naomi. We'll dig into her example in a moment. Let me back up and just make sure that I'm not assuming too much here about what we understand lament to be. What is lament? Well, a basic dictionary definition of lament would be that it's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I think it's a synonym for grief, but it's more potent. It's, it's, more, it's a stronger version of grief. Paul Miller says in his book, A Loving Life, he puts it this way, a lament grieves that the world is unbalanced. It grieves at the gap that exists between reality and God's promise. It believes in a God who is there, who can act in time and space. It doesn't drift into cynicism or unbelief, but it engages God passionately with what is wrong. Do you engage God passionately with what is wrong? Is that a part of your normative relationship with him. Why do we lament? Well, we lament for a couple of reasons. Number one, we grieve what shouldn't be that is. We grieve things that shouldn't be that, but are, like death. Sometimes it's so apparent and obvious to us that death is wrong, untimely death. But I think I find myself even sometimes slipping into this mentality of when somebody is much, much older in life and They've lived a long and good life, and, and they die. Maybe they die in their sleep, like the way to go, right? That I think, oh, that was, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not. And we should always grieve death because it's an example of something that shouldn't be that is. So is disease. So is disunity amongst people. That only entered into the scene after sin. One of the first things that Adam and Eve did was start blaming each other for who was at fault for that sin. We grieve what shouldn't be that is when it comes to dehumanization of people, where individuals or systems devalue people or marginalize people. We lament what shouldn't be that is when it comes to frustrated plans. Again, go back to Genesis 3. One of the consequences of the fall was that work became inefficient and hard and toilsome and thorns and thistles and, man, why aren't things working the way that they're supposed to be? And work is no longer enjoyable. We can grieve that. We can lament that. That's something that, that shouldn't be that is. Why else do we lament? And this is more getting back to where Naomi is at in her own journey. We lament when we grieve the gap that exists between our expectations in life and for God and our reality. Last week we talked about Naomi and Elimelech's names and the names of her sons and there's kind of a cruel irony in the meaning of those names Naomi's name meant pleasant. Elimelech's name means my God is king. And yet Elimelech dies, their sons die, and Naomi is left here 
without a husband, without sons, without security, without hope. She's a member of the chosen people of God. She doesn't feel very protected and cherished in that moment. So she cries out in her pain in verses 20 and 21 when they are crossing through the gates into the town of Bethlehem, her hometown. The women are crying out, isn't this Naomi? They're surprised, they're excited to see her back. And she almost snaps in response, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Does that make you uncomfortable? Does that feel accusatory on her part toward God? I think one thing that's important to understand here, as again, we consider the complexity of the sinner saint journey, it's precisely because Naomi hopes in God that her, her emotions are magnified here. If she didn't believe in God, if she didn't have faith in God, then she wouldn't be directing her laments to him. It's also precisely because she believes God is powerful that she accuses him of being the one to attack her. So is this godly lament? Or is it an arrogant and unfounded attack upon God? Is Naomi being disrespectful here? I want to read to you a few examples from the Psalms and see how similar they may sound to Naomi's lament. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, the psalmist says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Sounds pretty similar in a lot of respects to Naomi's laments. And did you know that over one-third of the Psalms are, in fact, laments from the people of God toward their God? So they seem to be pretty important and have played an important part in the relationship between God's people and God. Hebrew scholar Tremper Longman says this. He says, there are many examples from the Psalms where there is a healthy raising of the fist to God. There are also examples of unhealthy raisings of the fist, notably in the wilderness. The difference is that in the healthy, they are speaking to God and not others. Because they are praying to God as they accuse him, there is actually a sense of hope. So how do we assess if our lament is healthy, if our grieving with God is healthy? Three things I want to offer. Number one, is your lament ever taken to God himself? Or does it stop at lamenting the circumstances and the people who are the source of your troubles in life? Both Naomi and the psalmist are very open in their laments that their issue is with God. The psalmists are actually doing it directly facing God. Presumably, Naomi could have been as well, although we only hear her articulated out loud before her daughters-in-law and the women in Bethlehem. Um, I want to offer this by way of analogy. If God says that in human relationships, when we have a problem with another or have been hurt by another, that we should go to that person, Matthew 18, then why would that not be the way in which God has designed for our grievances with him to be dealt with, to go to him personally? Something to consider. I think on this point too, there could be a question of, well then, is there a place 
to be able to process our laments with other people around us in community? And I think that the answer to that is yes. I think that for some of us, that is a really important step in processing our grievances against God, our struggles with God, because that's where those things become real. I think of a parallel example where God instructs us to confess our sins to one another. A couple of reasons I think he does that. Number one, it's because I think it keeps us honest. Sometimes it's easier to just confess our sins to God than it is to another person. If we're willing to actually confess and expose our sins to another person, then that almost is more real in some ways to us or can be. But there's another reason for that. I know that I've found for myself that sometimes by vocalizing, confessing my sin to another person, it becomes more real than if I just kind of talk about it in my own heart and life. I think it's similar when it comes to our laments, our struggles in faith with God through suffering. I do think that there's a healthy place for us to be expressing those to one another in community. Number two, how do we know if lament is healthy? Is there still obedience in the midst of pain? Or has that pain derailed discipleship in your life? And I think it's important too, not to just isolate to a moment, to a day, to a week, to a month, but an overall trajectory in your life. Or if we are in community and we're looking at others, like what's the overall trajectory that this person is on? Um, for Naomi, most scholars that, that I've read, commentators, will say that her decision to go back to Bethlehem was actually the beginning of a journey of repentance, returning to God. So even though she is expressing on the, on the verge of bitterness, her laments and her frustrations and her heartache toward God, she is on a journey of repentance. She is returning to him. She's, she's obedient to what he has called her to do. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to interpret my own notes. I think what's important is that a person hasn't abandoned their faith entirely. You don't have to understand everything in order to be obedient, okay? So it may be even that you're struggling with obedience in that particular area, but what about the others that God has made plain and clear to you? Are you able to at least keep moving forward in those? I think of Peter, who after Jesus um, gave that really difficult teaching about his blood, you know, and his body, and drinking his blood, and eating his body, like all these people just left and said, yeah, game over for following after Jesus. He said, you know, to whom else shall I go? He didn't fully understand that. Clearly evidenced by his betrayal, or his, rather his rejection of Jesus, his denial of him later. But he said, to whom else shall we go? And where he could be faithful and obedient, he continued to be faithful and obedient. So is there still obedience in the midst of pain? And then thirdly, is there a willingness to still rejoice where you can rejoice in the midst of your lamentation? Um, if you've read the Psalms, if you're familiar with the Psalms and the Psalms of, of lament, many of them end in rejoicing, not because there's something right now in their circumstances they can rejoice over, but they're reflecting upon what God has done before and they're anticipating by faith he's gonna do it again. And I think we even see that in Naomi in chapter two, we'll get to it, when Ruth comes back to her with the news of having met Boaz, we'll encounter him next time, and also with this abundance of food that she has, Naomi could have crossed her arms and just been like, well, we'll see. We'll see if this, 
if this good trend continues. But she pronounces blessing upon Boaz um, from the Lord. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord. It's like Naomi wanted a reason to be able to praise God and rejoice and pronounce God's blessing upon others. And when she had one, she did. So is there a willingness to still rejoice in the midst of your lament? I think a practice of thankfulness in our lives as Christians is so important, especially for this, when we're enduring suffering. What can we still be thankful for? Are we willing to give God thanks for those things? Okay. I also think, too, that it's worth noting, this is, again, a quote from Paul Miller. He says, no one in the story criticizes Naomi for being disrespectful of God, not the narrator, not the village women, nor does Ruth, nor does God. He just quietly wraps her in his arms for the rest of her life. Now, you could say that's an argument from silence, but if we're to understand Ruth as God's answer to Naomi's pain, and I think we should, especially as we continue to read this story, then it's in fact true. We don't see God or anyone else rush in and correct Naomi in the midst of her lamenting as she struggles to understand the suffering that she's undergoing. I think that should inform how we come alongside others who are struggling in their suffering, to not be quick to rush in and to correct, especially in the midst of crisis. It can be really helpful for people to have more latitude, to be able to kind of reach the outer thresholds and boundaries of what they're really feeling about life and towards God in order to be able to process. Again, the alternative is to stuff it down, which can be really unhealthy because um, we're not actually then dealing with the true and honest feelings that we have over our circumstances and toward God. So again, if you're in that position to come alongside someone who's struggling, who's suffering, and maybe they're even venting and vocalizing some things, you're like, I don't know if that's true. Consider, is there evidence that they are taking it to God at least? Are they willing to, at the end of your time with them, at least in prayer, vocalize those things to God? Encourage them that way and see if they're open to that. Secondly, is there still obedience in their lives, at least in other areas, if not this one that's a sticking point? And then thirdly, is there a willingness on their part to be rejoice, rejoicing and to be thankful where they can be still? Okay, because I think that's an important part of what it means to be in community with each other, is to walk alongside each other in suffering. And so we need to be able to know how do we handle people's laments that may seem off-kilter, borderline heretical, and I think what we see in this story is God gave Naomi space. And Naomi was still tracking in faith, even if it was a feeble one. So I want to shift our focus for the last few minutes here to look from Naomi instead to Ruth. Ruth's on the other side of this equation. She has a very different experience in some ways right now. She's a real person, of course. She's undergoing her own heartache and loss and all that she's left behind. But in the midst of this, and in the midst of this great commitment that she has made to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi all but forgets her. A couple ways we see this. Consider last week, Naomi's response to Ruth after Ruth has pushed back against Naomi's command to go back. And, and, and Ruth says, no, I'm coming with you. Where you go, I will go. Your people, I'll make my people. Your God is my God. I will die there with you. Long after you're dead, I'm going to stay there and I'm going to make that my home and my God and my people. And this is what we read, verse 18. And when Naomi saw all that she, was, that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Not a thank you, not a, wow, 
thank you so much. That's profound. Thank you for being with me in the midst of my sorrow. Silence. And the interesting thing, too, is that commentators will note that the Hebrew there implies that probably that whole journey back to Bethlehem was one of silence. Never an acknowledgement of Ruth's sacrificial act of love. Naomi was probably consumed in her own heartache and her own thoughts on that journey back. And so Ruth, Ruth was left to just seek her affirmation for the decision she'd made from God alone. She wasn't getting it from Naomi. And this becomes even more apparent upon their arrival. Now they're back in Bethlehem. They're walking through the gates and the women are crying out, is that Naomi? And Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but now I have returned. He's brought me back empty. Ouch. Here's why. She wasn't talking about food. They left Bethlehem to begin with because they were borderline starving. She was talking about family. She left with her husband and her sons, and they were gone. And now she just attributes her situation. She said, I'm, I'm coming back empty while Ruth is right by her side. Ruth was ignored. She was forgotten in the midst of Naomi's pain. And this prepares us for an important reality when it comes to loving others. And that is that love, in particular, this kind of hesed, one-way, loyal, committed love, can be lonely. When you commit yourself in love to another person, you have to be prepared that there may be no one to love you in return. From a human perspective, Ruth was on her own in this moment. And yet she remained, which tells us that Ruth's love was founded on something much deeper than feelings, much deeper than the promise of reciprocation. What is at the center of that kind of love? You remember that exchange that she had last week with Naomi when Naomi was trying to convince Ruth and Orpah to go back Naomi commanded them to return, and in essence, what she was saying to them both is, you have to save your life, and in order to do that, you have to lose me. My life is over anyway. But Ruth, especially when you take into consideration all that she was giving up, nation and family and security and community and any hope of a husband and children in the future, all for an old woman who would not be able to provide for her, her determination to go with Naomi at that point was in essence saying in response, no, Naomi, my life is over and I'm going with you. In other words, what's at the center of Hesed love is a dying that takes place. Death is at the center of Christian love. It's a kind of love that makes a conscious decision to limit our lives in order to enter into someone else's suffering. And maybe that sounds exceptional. Ruth's love here is exceptional. But actually, that's a normal part of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul talks about his desire, he says in Philippians 3.10, to share in the sufferings of Christ in order to become like him in his death. Paul saw that as a normative part of his Christian life. This isn't abnormal. Death is actually at the heart of Christian love. And Ruth understood that. Which is why, by the way, our hope and our joy and our energy for life needs to come from Jesus alone and not depend upon that other person we're seeking to love. Which leads us to our last point, which is this. Love never goes unnoticed. 
if love often goes unnoticed by the people around us, as much as we hope, rightfully hope for it, love never goes unnoticed by God. We see the faithfulness of God here at the end of our passage. He was right there with Ruth and Naomi all along, and this will become increasingly apparent as we continue in this journey in Ruth, but we get a glimpse of it even today in verse 22, which says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is just one in a series of these, and it just so happened that Ruth and Naomi fill in the blank. It just so happened they showed up at the beginning of the harvest season. It just so happened that Ruth, when she went out into the fields, as we'll see, to glean from the barley, to get some food for her and Naomi, ended up in the field of this guy named Boaz, who just so happened to be in the clan of Elimelech, so a guy who could actually be a redeemer and, in a sense, save Ruth and Naomi. And he also just so happened to be coming back from Bethlehem at the very time that she entered into his field, and so on and so forth. These weren't just chance. This was God's answer to their pain and to their faith to just put one foot in front of the other in the midst of what felt like death to them at times. It wasn't some supernatural event that answered all the pain and questions in one moment, but as Ruth and Naomi put one foot in front of the other, the God of resurrection life would continue to meet them in the midst of what sometimes felt like death, especially for Ruth. One more time, Paul Miller says this, we have much to learn about love from this story, but all we need to know at this point is this, you can't flee the crucible. Love will not grow if you check out and give in to the seductive call of bitterness and cynicism or seek comfort elsewhere. We have to hang in there with the story that God has permitted in our lives. As we endure, as we keep showing up for life when it makes no sense, we learn to love and God shows up too. We're gonna celebrate communion in a moment. And the way that we do that at Terra Nova Church is we'll have two songs in which you can respond to God and whatever he's doing in your heart, to rejoice, to lament, but to come forward in faith and receive what God has done for you on the cross through his son, Jesus. There'll be two servers. One will hold a uh, plate of matzah, broken matzah representing Jesus's body broken for your sin and the other holding a cup, two cups, one with wine, one with juice in it that you can dip that matzah into, representing his blood that was shed for our sins. As you come forward to today, consider maybe who you relate with in this story of Ruth. Maybe it's Naomi. Because for some of us, when we're suffering, we get what it's like to have our vision narrowed, where in our pain, it's really hard for us to see the needs of those around us. But you don't have to be stuck there. Jesus can relate. Are you familiar with that scene? Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Golgotha? He had a cross on his shoulder. He'd already been whipped and beaten. He knew he was going to his death. Some women are alongside the road. They're weeping for him. And he turns, and rather than relishing that weeping and, and wallowing in what he was in, he actually ministers to them. How was he able to do that? Because he knew that wasn't the end because he trusted in his father and he knew that there was resurrection life to come. Maybe some of you relate more to Ruth this morning. Maybe some of you are in relationships where you're seeking to love with this Hesed love and you're experiencing what it is for your options to be narrowed, 
it limits you when you love in this way. It's a conscious choice you are making to limit your own life, to enter into the sufferings of those around you. Because death is at the center of Christian love. But God understands this. Jeremiah 31.3 says this, I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting hesed love is the word used. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. God's love for you this morning was a conscious choice to put him on a path that limited his options, that locked him into a road that would end in his suffering and death for you. So take courage, take hope, your own perseverance and endurance and loving others is a miniature picture and story of the gospel at work in that person's life, but what God has done and is doing for you as well. Let's pray. Holy and good God, help us to see today that our pain doesn't mean that you have left us. And in fact, you will work through it for our good. Please sustain our faith. Open our eyes to see our sin and our shortcomings so that we can confess, so that we can grow in humility and know the freeing power of your forgiveness. God, bear with our laments as you so graciously do. And would you correct our vision to see rightly? And would you increase our faith where we are unable to? Would you strengthen us to love others in the way that you love us? Would you meet us in the midst of our loneliness when our love is rejected, knowing that you see it all? God, your son was the only one who ever had to be truly alone and forsaken so that we would not have to be. Thank you for your presence with us. Please encourage our hearts with these truths today as we continue in our time of worship. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.